Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. I told you last week that Mary and I have been going through and decluttering and getting rid of things and giving things to our kids. And uh, we were working up in the attic this past week. And I ran across something, you know, as a kid, I would read comic books, but I didn't collect comic books. But this one somehow remained, and I had no idea it was there. Uh, Here's a picture of it. I bought it when I was 12 years old, spent 12 cents on it. It was the first edition when Batgirl showed up. And of course, you got to know about that. And uh, so anyway, uh, it was just sitting on a box in our attic. So it's been sitting there for 28 years. But that means, you know, it's moved uh, multiple times since I was 12 years old. And I just didn't even know I even had it. And, And so I was sitting there looking at it. And I said, you know, Mary and I were talking. I think Harvey would really like this. And she said, yeah. And Mary was going up there to keep the kids. So she took it and gave it to Harvey. And he was all excited about it. And um, then I started thinking, I said, you know, I probably need to check that thing out because I I just don't know anything about it. And so I went online and was doing some research and found that four that were in mint condition had sold for over $20,000 a piece. And then I said, well, this one's in bad shape, so it's not in great shape, so it's not worth anything like that. And but I found that the ones that are not in good shape were selling for five hundred dollars a piece. How do you take a comic book away from your grandchild <laughs> and it be okay with it? And uh, I started realizing I can't do that. So next time I see him, I'm just going to let him know he's good until he's 16 years old as far as any more presents from me. But uh, anyway, so that kind of sets up what I'm going to talk about today in that it has nothing to do with it. So I just wanted to share that story with you uh, that you should always check your comic books before you give them to your grandkids, that and baseball cards. But um, I want to finish up today as we talk about life in the spirit And today we're going to change gears a little bit because we've been talking about the individual, but today we're going to talk about as a church uh, because we as individuals make up the church. And and so I want to talk about the the actual supernatural church. Uh, It was said that the Holy Spirit is in the body of Christ, which is the church. So the Holy Spirit's in you individually but he is in us collectively as a church. In fact, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, when two or more of you gather in my name, uh, I'm there with you. If two or more of you agree on something, uh, then God, I mean, it's amazing the power that comes with the two or more. And so there's amazing power. You have power in that you have the Holy Spirit in you. And it is a supernatural power that's in you. Because it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that's supernatural. It's the power that created the universe. That's supernatural. And that power lives in you. That's pretty astounding. I mean, you know, you grow up and you look at these superheroes and stuff and you say, oh, that'd be really cool to have supernatural powers. And then you think about it, but I do. 
I have the Holy Spirit in me. Now, there's some lessons I've learned through the years. And, you know, I just kind of make a little list in my brain and things that I observe and things that I've totally changed my mind about based on learning more about what Scripture says. And I used to believe that if a church was just growing and energetic, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Until I started getting to know some of those churches that are growing and energetic. And in some of them, not all of them, because some of them are doing it right, uh, but some of them I found they don't even preach the Bible. They preach feel-good sermons, how to feel good about yourself, all the latest how-to stuff. So numbers and energy is not necessarily an indicator that God's at work. Uh, another observation I've had is I just don't like celebrity preachers. I, I, I don't think there's a place for that. I like a celebrity savior. But when the spotlight gets put on a man, it always, always doesn't end well. I, I mean, man gets a big head. He starts believing what everybody says about him. And then soon he lets his guard down and soon he makes some disastrous decisions. I, I um, you know, we count people at Gateway because people count. We care about people. But I think God's definition of a successful church is changed lives. When lives are being changed, you see, the world has its standards of definition. And unfortunately, often the church has adopted the world's standards of evaluation. And so we will look for success and we will define what success looks like. Instead, God says, no, you don't worry about the success. You worry about or you focus on significance. And significance is found in changed lives. If lives are not being changed, numbers mean nothing. I mean, you can always have a program to draw a crowd. You can always have an event to draw a crowd. But unless lives are changed, it means nothing. That's why everything we do at Gateway, we ultimately are asking ourselves the question, we have these events so that we have an opportunity for our people to invite guests so that we can get them into a small group, so that they can hear about Jesus, so that they can be introduced to Christ and maybe pray to receive Christ so that their life is changed. God really does care about his bride. But the world has infiltrated the church with its definitions. And the church has gotten in trouble over it. In fact, I would say some of the most significant churches in this world you've never even heard of. 
And some of them are in faraway places. Now, I want to show you a story about a prophet named Elijah. This is in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to just kind of work through that chapter. I'm going to kind of talk through it. Um, And this is the story where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. You see, Israel was once again spiritually bankrupt. They had a habit of being rich in the Lord and then getting their eyes off the Lord, and then they become spiritually bankrupt. And so God would raise up a prophet to to declare their bankruptcy. And Elijah was such a person. And so Elijah actually prayed that God would shut the windows of heaven and hold the rain to get the people's attention. And a drought came that lasted three and a half years, and it got the attention of the people. And so that God could show them who he is instead of who they've chosen to make their gods. So in verse 1, it says, Now in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Now this isn't King Ahab's, not Ahab the Arab with a camel named Clyde. Some of you know that old song. This is a different Ahab. And um, so he says, go and present yourself to King Ahab and tell him I will soon send rain. Well, that was good news. But, but you see, everybody was out to get Elijah because they hold him responsible. So Elijah went and he appeared to appear before Ahab. Now, meanwhile, the famine was getting worse and was becoming very severe. So Ahab called a guy named Obadiah who was in charge of the palace, but Obadiah was a devout follower of the Lord. And so he stayed faithful to the Lord. In fact, one time when Jezebel, who was the queen, tried to kill all the prophets, Obadiah hid a hundred prophets, 50 in one cage and a cave and 50 in another cave, and because he was in charge of the palace, he had access to food and water, and he made sure they had food and water. Because, you see, Obadiah feared the Lord more than he feared King Ahab. So Ahab said to Obadiah, we need to go check out and see if we can find at least some grass to keep my animals alive. You see, Ahab was more concerned about his possessions than the Lord's possessions, the people. So they both went in two different directions. And as Obadiah was walking along, he saw Elijah coming towards him. And he recognized him at once and he bowed down to the ground and said, Is that really you, Lord Elijah? And he said, Yes, it is. Now go tell your master that I'm here. And Obadiah protested. He said, what harm have I done to you that you're trying to get me killed? You know, Ahab's been after you. And every time he heard that you were at some place, he would go after you and you would be gone. And and now if I go to King Ahab and tell him that you're here and then the Lord takes you away and King Ahab Ahab comes, he's going to be so mad he's going to kill me. So don't, don't forget, I'm the guy who hid the hundred prophets. I'm the guy that fed them. So what have I done to you? I, I can understand his fear. 
Because things were bad. And everybody was looking to the king for answers and there were none. And so Elijah said, go and tell your master I'm here. And I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. Now, look at this phrasing. This is real important. Don't miss this. So I swear to you by Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand. Present tense. He didn't say God who in the past has done things and God who we hope in the future he does things. He says, nope, the God who's right here right now and I'm in his presence, he's going to do things. He's doing it now. <clears throat> now here's the difference. You have the Holy Spirit present tense in you. You have supernatural power living in you through the Holy Spirit. And you can say, I stand in the presence of Holy God because he lives in me. And he's with you 24-7. So what was true of Elijah is true of you. You're standing in the presence of Holy God. Now the question is, do you live like it? Does it make a difference? Does your life reflect that? When Ahab saw Elijah, he said, so it, it's really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Now, when you stand in the presence of God, it gives you boldness. So here's this prophet whom everybody's trying to kill, and he's talking to the king of the land, and he says, I have made no trouble for Israel. You, you and your family, you are the troublemaker. Oh, my goodness. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you have worshipped the images of Baal instead. No, if anybody's in trouble around here, Ahab, it's you. Man, when you are aware of the presence of Almighty God in your life, there's a boldness that you have that you cannot explain otherwise. A boldness to speak truth. So Elijah started giving the orders. He said, now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel. He didn't say, pretty please. He didn't say, please at all. He said, you do this. And Ahab did it. And he summoned the entire nation to Mount Carmel. If you, those of you who go to Israel with me, we go to this place. Where, what we're talking about now, we have been there. And he said, also bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Eshra who are supported by Jezebel, your wife, your wicked queen wife. So did Ahab, did he stumble? Did he 
uh, question? Did he re resist? No. It says, so Ahab summoned all the people and the prophets. He did exactly as he was told because he became aware of the presence of holy God. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, talking to all the people, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people were completely silent. You see, when truth is spoken in power, there is no response, no excuse. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. So that means those hundred guys that Obadiah had hidden had been found and were killed. And Elijah was the last representative of holy God in the land. Then Elijah told them, bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish. Cut it into pieces and lay it on the altar, but don't set fire to the altar, because that's normally what you would do. And he said, and I'll do the same thing with the other bull, but I won't set fire to the altar. And then he said, then I want you to call on your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, <clears throat> and whoever answers, that'll be the one we worship. That'll be the true God. So from sunup until noon, the Baal prophets called out to Baal, and they asked Baal to answer them, and there was no reply of any kind. And then at noon, they started dancing and hobbling around the altar they had made. I would imagine this was a tremendous form of entertainment for the people of Israel. They were seeing the folly of these Baal worshipers and prophets that many of Israel had followed. At noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Now, that took some boldness, knowing that everybody was against him. He said, you're going to have to shout louder, for surely he is God, right? Maybe he's daydreaming. And then I love the humor of a prophet. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's gone to the cosmic bathroom somewhere. Or maybe he's away on a trip or he's taking a little vacation. Or maybe he's asleep and, and, and needs to be wakened. And they shouted louder. And they followed their custom and they cut themselves. You know, it's interesting to me that they would cut themselves as a form of worship. Today, in our society, sometimes we deal with children and teenagers who cut themselves as a form of punishment. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. So basically, for 12 hours, they were going at it. 
and nothing was happening. No sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people. He said, all right, gather around. Get in a little closer here. The sun was getting ready to go down. And so he prepared the altar that had been torn down. You see, all the altars of God had been torn down because of these prophets of Baal. He took 12 stones, each one representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it enough to hold three gallons. He piled the wood and piled the pieces of the animal there. He told him to fill four large jugs of jars with water and pour it over the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And he said, do it a third time and, and even fill the trench. So this thing was just soaked in water. And then here's what this simple man of God who was in the presence of holy God, the same God who lives in you, he prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> the reason he said that was to make it very clear to the people who were listening which God he was talking to. There's only one God that would be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew exactly which God he was talking about, the God, the creator of the universe. He said, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. In other words, make this all about you, God, not about me. I've simply obeyed you. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, oh, Lord, are God. And that you will bring them back to yourself. Immediately, immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven. Now, this fire is God's testing, consuming fire. This fire is the exact same fire that when you stand before God with your works and God tests your works and he tests what's made of gold, silver, and precious stones and what's made of wood, hay, and straw, this is that exact same fire that's going to come down and test it. And here's how definitive this fire is. This fire came down and it consumed the wood and it consumed the bull that had been sacrificed. But it didn't stop there. It consumed the stones of the altar. But it did not stop there. It consumed even the dust on the ground. An all-consuming fire. And they watched it come down from heaven in a flash. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground, as they should have, and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Well, there's a good reason why they did that. Because they knew if they didn't turn back to God, the consuming fire would, become, look, would come looking for them, and rightly so. God would have been just in consuming them. Then Elijah commanded them, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. 
So they did that. They cooked them down to the Kishon Valley, and there they were killed, destroyed. For they were the source of what took the people of Israel away from holy God. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go and get something to drink and eat, because I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. There's been a drought for three and a half years. No rain, no rainstorm. And nobody else heard this, and nobody else saw this, but Abraham, who had now supernatural ears because he was in the presence of a supernatural God, he heard the storm coming. And so Ahab did... I mean, this king became like a little child before the man of God, and he obeyed. The king who's used to giving orders, not taking them. Then Elijah went up with a servant, and he bent over and he put his heads down between his knees and he prayed. We don't have the recording of that prayer, but we know the end results. So we're praying, we know then that he was praying that God would end the drought and bring the storm. And he told his servant, go and see out of the ocean what you see. And the servant came back and said, I don't see anything. And he sent him seven times. And finally on the seventh time, the servant came back and said, I saw a white cloud the size of a man's fist coming over the sea. And then just on the evidence of that small little puff of cloud, Ahab told his servant, you, or, or Elijah told his servant, you go tell Ahab to get in his chariot and head home because he's going to get caught in a rainstorm and it's not going to be good. And so Ahab did exactly as the servant told him. And he got in his chariot and he headed there. And soon the sky was black with clouds and the wind, a heavy wind, brought a terrific rainstorm and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Now there's this last verse in chapter 18 that catches my attention. It says, Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. You could say supernatural strength. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. <clears throat> so get this picture. Elijah tells Ahab, get in your chariot, head home. And so the chariot's going quickly. And when Ahab arrives to his destination, there standing the prophet. And he's kind of like, what? Where, where's your horse? How did you outrun me? I didn't see. Did you pass me? God had given him supernatural strength that he outran that horse. Maybe it was just that one last sign. <clears throat> Don't mess with me, Ahab. Because I'm in the presence of holy God. Maybe it was that one last indicator. Don't you mess with me. Because I represent holy God. 
to you. When God works, people respond. When God works in your life, how do people respond? <clears throat> when God, God saves you from an illness that should have been a death sentence, do you give God credit? How do people respond to that? <clears throat> when you have a desperate situation and you pray and you seek God and God shows up, how do people respond? In 1 Kings 18, when the people saw it, they fell face down to the ground and cried out, yes, the Lord, he is God, the Lord is God. You ought to live a life in such a way that God shows up in your life because he's living in your life and he shows up in such a way that when people see what God does in your life, they bow down before not you but holy God. They don't say, oh, you must be special. No, they say, God is special. You ought to live your life in such a way that people look to God because they see what God is doing in your life. That's the way we ought to live. Is the kingdom of God evident in your life? Is he evident in your life? In Romans 14, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you live life in such a way that the Holy Spirit has such control of you that there's a goodness in you, there's a peace in you, there's a joy in you, that it does not matter what the circumstances are around you, it does not matter what happens to you, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a confidence, there's a goodness in you that faces those things with courage, because of the presence of God's Holy Spirit in you, that's evidence of God's kingdom in you. Or do you do the opposite and you wring your hands in fear and you even express it? You say, I'm so afraid. I don't know what I'm going to do. Or do you show a confidence in holy God that you would even say, you know, this illness I have, it may take my life, but I so trust God, that's okay with me. If it pleases God to take me into his presence now, I trust him. I trust him. Do you have a confident hope through the Holy Spirit? In Romans 15, Paul said, I pray that God, the source of hope, if your hope is in the, is in the world, you're going to be sorely disappointed. If your hope is in friendships, they're going to set, cut you short. They're going to sell you short. If your hope is in anything but the Lord, you're, it's misplaced. Paul says, I pray that this God who is the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace. Why? Because you trust him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens. 
when you are completely filled with joy and peace because you trust God, then it doesn't matter what happens to you because your life will overflow with a confident hope that God's got it, that God's in control, and you're trusting in him. Do you have that confident hope? See, God doesn't want to just help you out. He wants to transform you. Ephesians 1 says, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom, to give you insight, so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. You have holy God living inside of you, and you need spiritual wisdom, and you need spiritual insight in order to grow in your knowledge of who it is that lives in you. Are you praying for that for yourself? So if you prayed earnestly, would it make a difference? Look at what James says about Elijah. I like this. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet, when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. So he's telling us, hey, if you're just a regular old person, guess what? When you have God in your life, and you pray earnestly, things are going to happen. Things are going to happen. You know, we're a Southern Baptist church, and the Southern Baptist Convention, we're the largest, most conservative and evangelical Christian denomination in our country. And yet, for the last 12 years, we've had a declining membership as a, as a denomination. Baptisms are declining. Something like, Half of our churches aren't even baptizing people. Man, I'm thankful this past year we baptized 45 people. That's great. 45 people who opened their hearts to Jesus. 45 people whose lives have been transformed. That's something to get excited about. You know, twice in the history of our country, we've had great spiritual awakenings. Only twice. The first one was in 1729. There was a group of guys in Oxford University in England who were praying for a revival, and it came, and it made its way to the United States through some guys like Charles and John Wesley and George Whitfield, and a great awakening, the first great awakening, happened in the early 1700s. And then just shy of 100 years later, in 1806, there was a second great awakening. It happened at Williams College in what they call the Haystack Prayer Meeting. It's when a group of college students were caught in a storm. They went into a barn and gathered in a haystack. They were praying for God to send revival and a great awakening spread across the country. On the 200th anniversary of that great awakening, a pastor friend 
of mine that, I'm, uh, that I know uh, was invited to come and bring the message. So in that school where this great revival happened, and they're celebrating that, this pastor friend, he got up and he preached a gospel message. Afterwards, an older pastor came up to him and he said, you know what? That's the first time in my lifetime I've ever heard the gospel preached at this school. The location of a great awakening, and they're still celebrating that great awakening, and they don't even preach the gospel anymore. I want to ask you a question. Do you think God is happy that every single minute, 83 people die without Jesus. I don't think he's happy with that. I think it breaks his heart. 83 people every minute die without Jesus. And he's looking to the church and is asking the question, you have my presence. All you have to do is ask. Do you dare to believe and have hope? Do you dare pray for a great awakening? Let's pray.